the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. This case is the most important case probably of my professional life as a lawyer, as a constitutional law professor, and as a broadcaster. And it changed the fundamental architecture of the United States by going back to what it was prior to 1973. State legislatures and state people who act through amendments will decide what the abortion regimes of their states are. And an entire branch, a diseased branch of constitutional law will be cut off of the tree of the Constitution. It's diseased because it leads people, as the late Justice Scalia said, into complete somersaults and pretzel of logic as to what to do next in areas of free speech and uh, the right to assembly. There's a whole case law of abortion that doesn't make any sense except for these two terrible cases of Roe and Casey. And those are going away. Why? Because the right to abortion is not in the Constitution, as Justice Thomas framed in his question. I'll just play the question part and then end it. Cut number 16, Justice Thomas. General, would you specifically tell me, uh, uh, specifically, uh state what the right is? Is it specifically abortion? Is it uh, liberty? Is it autonomy? Is it privacy? It's uh, none of those. It doesn't exist. That's what he's getting at. Scott Stewart, the Solicitor General of Mississippi, stood before the court and did a very difficult thing. He argued that the court has been wrong for 50 years and needs to overturn its work. Now, Scott Stewart is a pretty smart guy. He has um, graduated from Princeton and Stanford Law School. He clerked for Chief, Ju- uh, excuse me, for Justice Clarence Thomas. He clerked for Judge uh, O'Scanlan of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. He worked in the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel, where they stick all the smart people. And he has been at work in the Civil Division of the Department of Justice as a Deputy Assistant Attorney General. He is bound for the court himself someday. Uh, if not the Supreme Court, then appellate court. He's a very smart individual, and he's a very serious lawyer. And General Stewart, as he is called by the court, began his argument this way, asking the court to overturn Roe and Casey. It didn't matter that the law, apply, that the law applies when an unborn child is undeniably human, when risks to women surge, and when the common abortion procedure is brutal. The lower courts held that because the law prohibits abortions before viability, it is unconstitutional no matter what. Roe and Casey's core holding, according to those courts, is that the people can protect an unborn girl's life when she just barely can survive outside the womb, but not any earlier when she needs a little more help. That is the world under Roe and Casey. That is not the world the Constitution promises. The Constitution places its trust in the people. On hard issue after hard issue, the people make this country work. Abortion is a hard issue. It demands the best from all of us, not a judgment 
by just a few of us. When an issue affects everyone, and when the Constitution does not take sides on it, it belongs to the people. Roe and Casey have failed, but the people, if given the chance, will succeed. This court should overrule Roe and Casey and uphold the state's law. I welcome the court's questions. And the court began those questions. Chief Justice Roberts asked about the 15-week ban. That is what Mississippi has passed, a ban on all abortions after 15 weeks of, of pregnancy. Chief Justice. I'd like to focus on the 15-week ban because that's not a dramatic departure from uh, viability. It is the standard that the vast majority of other countries have. Uh, when you get to the viability standard, we share uh, uh, that standard with the People's Republic of China and North Korea. And I don't think you have to be in favor of looking to international law to set our constitutional standards to be concerned if those are your share that particular time period. I think there's two questions there, Your Honor, if I may. Up there, I, 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 again, I, I'm interested in Julie Reichelman and her argument. I listened to that. But the questions tell us which way the court is leaning. And here the Chief Justice signals that he has heard and has absorbed what many people have remarked upon, that the United States law about unborn children is as brutal as that of North Korea and China. And I said, wow, on Twitter when I heard that. Well, to hear the Chief Justice of the United States say that tells me that Roe and Casey are doomed because we are not North Korea and China. We are not that brutal a society. We are not going to do this anymore. Uh, then I want to go to Brett Kavanaugh. This is the longest clip I'm going to play for you because it's about stare decisis. Now, I've written about this in National Review. The Chief Justice has written when and how stare decisis does not matter. But Justice Kavanaugh very carefully, and he was speaking here for the benefit of the media and the people. And I want you to hear what Justice Kavanaugh said about stare decisis, the doctrine that past decisions ought to matter a lot, but not be absolute rules that can never be revisited. Cut number 21. I think the other side would say that the core problem here is that the court uh, has been forced by the position you're taking and by the, the cases to pick sides on uh, the most contentious social debate in American life and to do so in a situation where they say uh, that the Constitution is neutral on the question of abortion, the text and history, that the Constitution's neither pro-life nor pro-choice on the question of abortion. Uh, and they would say, therefore, it should be left to the people, to the states, um, or, or to Congress. Uh, and I think they also then continue, because the Constitution is neutral, that this court should be scrupulously neutral on the question of abortion, neither pro-choice nor pro-life. But because they say the Constitution doesn't give us the authority, we should leave it to the states and we should be scrupulously neutral on the question. And that they are saying here, I think, that we should return to a position of neutrality uh, on that contentious social issue rather than continuing to pick sides on that issue. So I think that's at a big picture level their argument. I want to give you a chance to respond to that. 
Yes, a, a few points, if I may, Your Honor. First, of course, those very same arguments were made in Casey, and the court rejected them, saying that um, this philosophical disagreements can't be resolved in a way that a woman has no choice in the matter. And second, I don't think it would be a neutral position. The Constitution provides a guarantee of liberty. The court has interpreted that liberty to include the ability to make decisions related to childbearing, marriage, and family. Women have an equal right to liberty under the Constitution, Your Honor. And if Stop right there. Uh, uh, that is, again, counsel for the abortion provider, and Justice Kavanaugh gave her her shot. The justices were very fair to counsel on both sides. But then Justice Kavanaugh delivers, I think, the knockout punch. I want to ask a question about stare decisis uh, and to think uh, about how to approach that here, because there have been lots of questions picking up on Justice Barrett's questions and others. Um, and history helps think about stare decisis as I've looked at it and uh, the history of how the courts applied stare decisis. And when you really dig into it, um, history tells a somewhat different story, I think, than is sometimes assumed. If you think about some of the most important cases, the most consequential cases in this court's history, there's a string of them where the cases overruled precedent. Brown v. Board, uh, outlawed separate but equal. Uh, Baker versus Carr, which set the stage for one person, one vote. West Coast Hotel, which recognized the state's authority to regulate business. Miranda versus Arizona, which required police to give warnings when the right to about the right to remain silent and to have an attorney present to suspects in criminal custody. Lawrence v. Texas, which said that the state may not prohibit same-sex conduct. Knapp versus Ohio which held that the exclusionary rule applies to state criminal prosecutions to exclude evidence obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Gideon versus Rain Wainwright, which guaranteed the right to counsel in criminal cases. Obergefell, which recognized the constitutional right to same-sex marriage. In each of those cases, and that's uh, a list and I could go on, and those are some of the most consequential and important in the court's history, the court overruled uh, precedent. And um, it turns out uh, if the court in those cases had, had listened and they were presented in ar with arguments in those cases, adhere to precedent in Brown v. Board, adhere to Plessy uh, in West Coast Hotel, adhere to Atkins and adhere to Lochner. And if the court had done that in those cases, uh, you know, this, the country would be a much different place. All right. Justice Gorsuch made much the same point, cut number 20. I ask you a question about stare decisis, counsel. Um, your, your colleagues on the other side have emphasized that um, Casey rejected Roe's trimester framework and replaced it with an undue burden standard. They argue that the undue burden standard was uh, not well known to the law before that. Uh, and, and then they argue that the undue burden standard has evolved over time, too, in ways that the court has found difficult to agree upon. In Hellerstadt, for example, they, they, they point out in their briefs that uh, the court seemed to suggest that a court should consider both the benefits and the burdens associated with the uh, proposed restriction. In June Medical, more recently, uh, the court splintered on, on, on that same question. Uh, whether benefits could be considered or only burdens. And so the argument goes that this has proved to be uh, putting aside all the other um, obviously difficult questions in the case, 
that, that, that the standard itself has proved difficult to administer and that that is relevant to the stare decisis analysis. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to respond. There's no way to respond. Stare decisis doesn't work very well when that which is supposed to be the decision guiding is, in fact, not capable of guiding. Justice Barrett added this about burden on the women in safe haven laws. I have a follow-up to Justice Kagan's question about reliance. I'm just trying to nail down, and, and I asked um, Ms. Rickleman this question, too, but I'm not sure that I fully understand the government's position or um, Ms. Rickleman's position. So on pages 18 and 19 of your brief, you talk about reliance interests, and you quote some of the language from Casey about a woman's ability to participate in the social and economic life of the nation. And I mentioned the safe haven laws to Ms. Rickleman. And it, it seems to me, I fully understand the reliance interests. They're the airy ones Justice Kagan was referring to, and then they're the more uh, excuse me, specific ones um, about a woman's access to abortion as a backup form of birth control in the event that contraception fails so that she need not um, bear the burdens of pregnancy. But what do you have to say to petitioner's argument that those reliance interests do not include the reliance interests of parenting and bringing a child into the world when maybe that's not the best thing for her family or her career? That because now babies don't have to be kept. Babies can be given away. Finally, Justice Alito brings up the famous legal scholar John Hart Ely talking about Roe. Cut number 27. You, you do emphasize uh, that the court drew the line at viability in Roe and reaffirmed that in Casey. And that is certainly something that we have to take very seriously into consideration. But suppose we were considering that question now for the first time. I'm sure you know the arguments about the viability line as well as I do, probably better than I do. What would you say in defense of that line? What would you say to the argument that has been made many times by people who are pro-choice and pro-life that the line really doesn't make any sense, that it is, as Justice Blackman himself described it, arbitrary? The, the woman's, if a woman wants to be free of the burdens of pregnancy, that interest does not disappear the moment the viability line is crossed. Isn't that right? That he is so... He's so spot on. I'll come back to more of Justice Alito. The justice's signal. Casey and Roe will be overturned. I've been teaching con law for 25 years. I've always been in love with the arguments, but not on this case because it's all made up. It's not really the interpretation of the Constitution. It's the imposition of an unelected majority of five upon the people of the United States. And especially when Justices O'Connor, Souter, and Kennedy imposed a completely new test after 20 years of Roe not working or persuading. Everyone laughs at Roe in the business. Everyone who knows a lot. Roe's a silly case. It was just made up by Harry Blackman and just a subject of ridicule. So Connor, Souter, and Kennedy decided they would try and impose their vision of the best regime on the country. And that's been ridiculed. It doesn't work either. So Justice Alito simply stepped up yesterday and said, egregiously wrong is egregiously wrong, and we need to get rid of it. Plessy v. Ferguson is one of the three worst decisions in the history of the court. Number one is Dred Scott. That brought about the Civil War by ruling that blacks could never be citizens and that slaves could never be freed by moving into a free state. Number two is Plessy v. Ferguson, which invented the doctrine separate can be equal. Number three is Korematsu, which allowed Americans of Japanese descent to be rounded up and put into camps. 
I think four and five are Rowan Casey. But in any event, when he refers to Plessy, uh, Justice Alito is talking about uh, a case that's just an awful stain on the court. One judge, one justice, Justice Harlan I, said this is ridiculous. But there was an 8-1 decision upholding a segregationist Jim Crow law that made blacks sit in different parts of the train than whites. So back, that's what he's talking about with, with Plessy. Let's play it from the beginning. Cut number 24. Case can never be overruled simply because it was egregiously wrong. I think that at the very least, the state would have to come forward with some kind of materially changed circumstance or some kind of materially new argument, and Mississippi hasn't done so in this really. State. So it suppose Plessy versus Ferguson was re-argued in 1897. So nothing had changed. Would it not be sufficient to say that was an egregiously wrong decision on the day it was handed down, and now it should be overruled? It certainly was egregiously wrong on the day that it was handed down, Plessy, but what the court said in analyzing Plessy to Brown and Casey was that what had become clear is that the factual premise that underlay the decision, this idea that segregation didn't create a badge of inferiority, had been entirely mistaken. So is it your answer that we needed all the experience from 1896 to 1954 to realize that Plessy was, was wrongly decided? Which answer my question, had it come before the court in 1897, should it have been overruled or not? I think it should have been overruled, but I think that the factual premise was wrong in the moment it was decided, and the court realized that and clarified that when it overruled. So it there are circumstances in which a decision may be overruled, properly overruled, when it must be overruled, simply because it was egregiously wrong at the moment it was decided. Well, I think every correct? other stare decisis factor, likewise, would have justified overruling in that interest, that actually it would run counter to any notion of reasonable reliance, that it was not a workable rule, that it had become an, an outlier in our understanding of fundamental freedoms. Well, there was, so a, lot of reliance of on, there was a lot of reliance on Plessy. The, the South built up a whole society based on the idea of white supremacy. So there was a lot of reliance. It was, it was improper reliance. It was reliance on an egregiously wrong understanding of what equal protection means. But your answer is, I, I, don't, I still don't understand, I still don't have your answer clearly. Can a decision be overruled simply because it was erroneously wrong, even if nothing has changed between the time of that decision and the time when the court is called upon to consider whether it should be overruled? Yes or no? Can you give me a yes or no answer on that? This court, no, has never overruled in that situation just based on a conclusion that the decision was wrong. It has always applied the stare decisis factors and likewise found that they weren't overruling in that instance. And, and Casey did that. It applied the stare you know, decisis Yeah, I can't even factors. believe she said that. She should have said Plessy is different from Roe. Plessy was obviously wrong on day one and Roe was not obviously wrong on day one. But she didn't say that and it's clear Plessy was wrong, Korematsu was wrong, Dred Scott was wrong, Roe was wrong, Casey was wrong. They're all egregiously wrong. Courts get it wrong sometimes. Mississippi's law will be upheld. What I just did in this segment, I began with Justice Thomas, the senior member of the court. I went to the chief justice, who will assign the opinion, I suspect, to himself. Then I went to Justice, Gor uh, justice Alito, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice um, Barrett, all of the justices. Six justices telegraphed in their questions and commentary on responses from counsel that Roe and Casey are finished. And I believe the Chief Justice will assign himself the opinion. I do not know if it will be the controlling holding, 
That means the most sweeping holding supported by five justices. I don't know. I suspect it will be. But Roe and Casey are finished, if those questions are indicative of where the court is going. Because it's clear as day to me and to most observers who are fair-minded that six justices at least are going to pronounce Roe and Casey overruled. And a new rule, one I hope of scrupulous neutrality, as Justice Kavanaugh labeled it, replacing them. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.